morning. If you have your copy of the scriptures, if you could open up to Luke chapter 1. And it certainly has been Christmas-sized. Is that the word that she used around here? And uh, big, thing, big thanks to the decorating team again for that. Thank you to Anne and Jacqueline Fox and Caitlin Detweiler. It's good work they do every year. If you're uh, using a pew Bible, we are on page 855 this morning. And have you ever noticed how your confidence in something determines how you act, right? So your level of degree of confidence impacts your decision-making. Um, in my family growing up, we used to express our confidence by, by betting about things. So if a song were to come on the radio, for example, and, and you're like, oh, that's Bruce Springsteen. And we're like, no, that's this other person. No one else sounds like Bruce Springsteen, so he's a pretty easy one. But you get what I'm saying. And um, you, you might say, oh, yeah, you want to bet? I bet you like $5 that's Bruce Springsteen. Well, obviously, that'd be an easy one because Bruce Springsteen. But the point is this. Um, that's how we would handle disagreements sometimes. And my mom would always have this, this famous, like, well, not famous, but she would always say, I, I never make a bet unless I'm sure. Right? I never make a bet unless I'm sure. And... When she said that, you knew she meant it, and so either you would be um, disappointed because she would take your bet and she would win, or you, when you'd hear it, you'd be, um, yeah, you'd, be, you'd, get, you'd get this either this sinking feeling in your stomach that you know you're about to lose a bet, or she just wouldn't take the bet because she knew she would win it, um, or she couldn't win it, excuse me. Fortunately, my mom was kind, and uh, she never made us pay off any of those debts. Our confidence determines how we act. Um, you ever see the show Shark Tank? Yeah? Sometimes they have the most ridiculous products on that show. For example, um, one was called the Waken Bacon, which was an alarm clock, which was designed to cook bacon at a certain time to wake you up. Um, if you're an Office fan, Michael Scott would be a buyer of that product because he loves to wake up to the smell of bacon. And, and unsurprisingly, none of the sharks invested in the Waken Bacon. Now, some of us might be a little disappointed because you actually would love a Waken Bacon. Um, but when you watch the show, the sharks kind of show their confidence in a product or an entrepreneur by whether or not they invest or how much they invest or what percentage they invest. Another example would be this. Um, I joined the churches, not that the church is official, but um, some people in our church do an NFL fantasy football league. And I mistakenly joined it this year. <laughs> Um, if you know me, I know nothing about sports or football. Um, and, and I have to apologize to these people. I'm going to do it formally right now. I apologize for joining your group um, because I haven't set a lineup once <laughs> because I have no confidence. I have no idea who to, set, who to pick and who to set. The teens helped me one time, but it didn't really matter. I lost anyway. Um, you know, I go, I go hunting too. Um, most of you know I, I enjoy hunting. And there's a number of things I check before I go out hunting. Um, I check the weather to see is it going to be a cold day or what's the, what's the barometer saying? Is it going to be a high pressure day? The deer tend to move more in that situation. I, I typically will check my, ca my cameras before I go out. I don't like to waste my time in the woods. So if I've got some deer that are moving through on a regular pattern, I'll go, I'll go out. Um, but if I don't, I, I don't waste my time. What I'm trying to show you is we make our decisions based on how confident we are in things, oftentimes in life. Obviously, there are exceptions, but in general, that, that's how our life works. And so I want you to think about your faith. I want you to think about your walk with the Lord. 
and, and how much of the decisions you make as a believer are, are controlled by your confidence in the gospel. Right? Are you confident in the gospel? And, and, or, or maybe as you look at your life, does it reflect a life that isn't confident in the gospel? The reason I, I bring this up is because we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for our Advent series. So we're going to be in Luke chapters 1 and 2 for the next couple weeks. And, and Lord willing, Pastor Brian will be back with us to be able to um, preach through mo- most of this. Um, you know, we want to be praying for him still. I'm, I'm grateful that I can step in for him and preach this morning as he's caring for Carissa. Um, this series is going to have two goals to it, as, as I understand it. Um, the first goal is just to be a sobering reminder of what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? So think of um, Charlie Brown when Linus gets up and he says, the real meaning of Christmas, he, you know, and, and he goes on to explain why, what we're celebrating at Christmas. And so one function of this series, one thing we want it to do is just to be a sobering reminder of what we celebrate at Christmas time. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He said, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's, there's lots of things that compete for our attention around Christmas time. There, there's Christmas shopping, there's decorating, there's meals, there's events, there's lights, there's Christmas movies, there's hot chocolate. And those are all fine things, by the way. I want to just be really clear. Like, the goal of this series isn't to make you feel guilty about your Christmas traditions. I have them. Some of them I like a lot. Some of them, like um, going to Longwood Gardens, I don't love that much. Um, I don't understand it. It's just, it's darkness and lights. You can get those driving around. But anyway, um, some of them are great, and, and, and that's fine. You're allowed to have your family traditions. You should have those, and, and Christmas is a wonderful time. I always, I always feel like Christmas is a warm time of year, right? Um, there's just something warm about coming together as a family and as a church family, and, and I love Christmas. But we want this function to, to sort of, or this series to function as a, a refocusing of sorts and, and a remembering. So we sang a bunch of Christmas songs. Are, are we consciously thinking about the words that we're singing as we sing those Christmas songs? You know, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Are we actually thinking about what those words mean? The second thing we want from this series, and the reason we've picked Luke for this series, is, is we want to have certainty. We want to be confident, and we want to encourage one another to be confident that these things happened, that the God of the universe sent his son to become a baby. Like, think about that. The God of the universe who created everything, powerful, wise. That God became a frail human baby. He cried. He had dirty diapers. He was a baby. He humbled himself. And for what purpose? So that by believing in his name and his death on the cross, we can be saved. And so one thing we want to walk away from, and, and then again, this is why we chose the Gospel of Luke, is, is we want to have confidence, and we want to be certain that these things happened. So let me read our text for this morning. Um, my task is to just introduce us to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to do that in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. So let me read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start to unpack it. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse number 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to you in your word, we pray that once again you would open our minds and our hearts to both understand and believe what we read. Lord, to become confident, to be emboldened in our faith by the message of your son Jesus, of his life, of his work, of his death. Father, we pray that you would use this series to remind us, to give us certainty. And this morning, as I open up this passage with your people, Lord, would you please let everything that's from me go in one ear and out the other. But Lord, anything that is from your spirit, I pray it would meditate in our hearts. And Lord, that you would transform us by your word in Christ's name, amen. So like I said, my task is to introduce you to the book of of, of Luke, there's only one of him. Um, Some facts about the Gospel of Luke. There are 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Matthew's gospel has 28 chapters, but Luke's is actually longer if you go through and count the verses. So by volume, Luke has the longest gospel, which as we start to unpack more is going to make sense why. Um, He records at least 10 unique parables. Does anybody know any of the famous parables in Luke that are just in Luke? Nobody wants to be on the spot. That's fine. There's the parable of the prodigal son. That's a really famous one, only in Luke. You also have the parable of the good Samaritan. That's like, like when somebody thinks of a parable in Jesus, what do they always think of? The good Samaritan, right? And again, think about those two, right? We have the parable of the good Samaritan. Is a Samaritan a Jew? No, a Samaritan is not a Jew. That's important. We're going to come back to why in a second. Um, Luke's gospel is more detailed than other gospel accounts. He, he even uses some medical terms that, that we really don't find anywhere else in the gospel accounts. He has a heavy emphasis on prayer. So um, some have even called the Gospel of Luke the Gospel of Prayer because throughout the Gospel, prayer is something that keeps coming up over and over. Something else that makes Luke unique is that he seems to lift women up and highlight their role in the ministry and life of Jesus, giving them a special position, which would have been uncharacteristic in his day. And so, so Luke... Another thing that makes him unique is that his, his section where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem is the longest out of all of the Gospels. Luke, Luke is a fascinating Gospel, and um, I, what I'd like to do is this. I, I basically have three things I'd like to do. One, I want to investigate who wrote it. Two, I want to investigate how he wrote it. And three, I want to just briefly talk about what is the Gospel as a whole about. You with me? So three things, and then we're done. Author. How did the author write the gospel? And then what is the themes? What are the big ideas of the gospel? So let's start with the author. Now, some of you might be saying, this is silly. Why would we figure out who the author is? His name's on the book. It's the book of Luke. So, so why bother? Well, it's interesting because the author never says his name is Luke, right? Like if you read through the whole gospel of Luke, there's no, like what would Paul do at the beginning of all his gospels? He'd say, I, Paul, and maybe Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, right? He'd introduce himself. This author doesn't do that. So the question is, how do we know it's Luke, right? And that's what I want to dig into for a second. So if we look at the introduction, it stands out. None of the other gospels have a greeting like this. It does have a greeting and and in a purpose statement very clearly laid out. 
He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, so other people, we're going to come back to that, other people are writing this down as well, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, whoever you are, we're trying to figure it out, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might be certain uh, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So whoever the author is, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, and he says he's most excellent Theophilus. So whoever this Theophilus is, he's probably a wealthy man. He's probably of, of status and maybe of rank. And so Luke speaks highly of him, um, excellent Theophilus. And probably we believe that whoever this Theophilus is hired or sponsored Luke to put the gospel account together. Now, why do I point in on Theophilus so much? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 1, everybody flip over two books. We're in Luke, so Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter 1. You're going to notice something. In Acts chapter 1, starting at verse number 1, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, there he is again, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command, uh, commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, interesting. In the introduction to Acts, we're, it's very clear that this book was written to who? Theophilus. And he even says, in my first book, I wrote to you about all the stuff that Jesus began to do. So, clearly, Acts and Luke have the same author. Do you agree with me? I'm trying to unpack this. By the way, some of you might be like, this is so boring. Why do we even bother? Right? Like, it's Luke. Listen, this is good Bible study. This is, you, should, you should have reason to believe what you believe. Why do we believe Luke wrote this? Well, let's figure it out. So whoever wrote Luke wrote Acts, and whoever wrote it wrote it for Theophilus, and the two seem to come together as a work, like a two-volume set. So we've got Luke 1 and Luke 2. Luke and Acts, they come together, first and second book. I don't know what your favorite series is, maybe like Harry Potter, maybe like Hunger Games, or maybe like, I don't know, what other series there are out there. But it's like that. They come in these chunks, these sets. So he's got these two books that he wrote for Theophilus. Now the question is, who wrote it? Go to Acts 16. So another right turn. When we get to Acts 16, the author is telling us about Paul's second missionary journey. And he's, he's talking about how... Um, He's talking about where Paul goes and some people with him, where they go. Look at verse number 6 of Acts 16. He says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to um, Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Something changed halfway through. Did you notice it? Did anybody, something in his writing style changed halfway through those verses. Did you catch it? It went from they to we. Did you catch that? Some of you are like, oh, I didn't see that. Look at it. They had come to Mysia, um, but the Spirit didn't allow them. And then in verse number 10, he says, 
we sought to go to Macedonia. So something just changed in the book of Acts. The author jumped into the story. Do you catch that? So this narrator is telling us about Paul and his mission, missionary journeys with his crew. And now all of a sudden, whoever wrote this book is there. And he's with them going on these journeys. So now turn with me to um, Philemon. All right, so another right turn. Um, if you're looking for it, you've got First and Second Corinthians. You've got General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then you've got all your T's. That's how I remember it. You've got your five T's, the Timothys, the Thessalonians, the Titus. Well, I got those backwards, the Thessalonians, the Timothys, and then Titus. And then after that, Philemon. Philemon, Hebrews, James. Slugs and bugs, anybody? Maybe two of you. Okay, good. Philemon, look at verse number 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Astarchus, Demas, and Luke. My fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why did we go there? Well, remember, whoever wrote Luke and Acts is part of Paul's team, like his crew of missionary journey guys that go around preaching the gospel. So if we can figure out who those guys are, we can kind of make a list to pick from. And so we have got Epaphras, we've got Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. There's five options. Turn to Colossians, so go back to the left. Remember, General Electric Power Company. All right, before all the T's. Colossians chapter 4, and look at verse number 10. Aristarchus, there he is again, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, okay, that's another one, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who's called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have... Uh, been a comfort to me. So who did he just list? He's like, well, these are, these are the men of the circumcision. That's Jews, right? So he said, here are the guys in my crew who are Jewish. And then he keeps going. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Okay, Epaphras, we've heard his name before. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Here it is. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So who is there once again? Well, there's a couple of repeats. There's Aristarchus, there's Mark, there's Epaphras, and, and then there's Luke again. Now, from those alone, we can't figure out who wrote Luke because we don't know which one of them it is. But the early church was 100% convinced that it was Luke. That, that, that was the tradition right off the bat. Um, if you go and reach, read a number of different church fathers, they all say that this book was written by Luke. And it's completely believable because he is right there, one of Paul's missionary journey fellows, one, part of Paul's crew. And what do we learn about him from this? Well, what's his job? He's a physician. So our author is a doctor, which makes sense of some of the medical language you run into in the book of Luke. He's also not a Jew. Did you catch that? So there was, he's like, here's all the fellows of the circumcision, and here's all the Gentiles. This guy, this guy, this guy, and Luke. So Luke is a Gentile. What's really interesting that we're going to see in a second is that the Gospel of Luke, the author cares a lot about Gentiles. A lot. He, he explains things that, that a Gentile would need to know. He, he highlights Gentiles over and over. I mean, think about what we just said. What's the most famous parable in the book of Luke? The good who? Samaritan, not the good Jew. The Good Samaritan. 
All right, well, this makes a lot of sense. So Luke is our author. And um, as we go through, I just want to point out a few other things. So we know our author. And now let's go back to Luke chapter 1. And I want us to think about how Luke the physician wrote this gospel account. So if you flip back to Luke chapter 1, looking again at verse number 1, he says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he starts off by saying, listen, people are writing about this. People are putting together a narrative of what has happened. And and what happened? Well, it's all about Jesus. So people are starting to write these narratives. And we do believe Mark was written before Luke. So, and and by the way, who did Luke know? (laughs) Who, Who did Luke know? Mark, did you, did you catch that when we were reading a second ago? He was one of the guys with him. So, so Luke, probably, he knows other guys are writing gospel accounts, and probably Mark was one of them. And so Luke is going to come to the table, and he's going he's to write his own account. Now, you may be wondering, if there's already gospel accounts, like we already have Mark, why do we need more? It's kind of like this. Have you noticed that Hollywood tends to remake old movies? over and over and over again. <laughs> like, and sometimes you're like, would you please just let that be dead? <laughs> like, we don't need any more of it. Um, well, it's the same thing, right? Sometimes a new director will get an idea and they'll say, yeah, I'm gonna remake this movie because I'm gonna have this spin to it, this flair to it. And, and sometimes that's really good and sometimes that's not. For example, um, do you know how many renditions of Peter Pan there are? There's like 18 renditions of Peter Pan. And for my wife, that's like the best thing ever. She loves that story. For me, it's like, why do we need 18 Peter Pans? They don't get better <laughs> as you keep releasing them. <laughs> Some of you are really offended because you love Peter Pan right now. You're like, Tinkerbell's so cute. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop hating on Peter Pan. There are other series, though, that get remade that are pretty good. So, for example, um, have you seen, maybe you've seen Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Trilogy right? Now, that's a situation where I would say, okay, a director, Christopher Nolan, took his incredible style and applied it to a a great topic, and you ended up with one of the best cinematic experiences ever, right? The Dark Knight trilogy is fantastic. So that that would be a good example of how an author or a, a director might remake a movie and it'd be worth watching. Now, when Luke decides to make his gospel, the question is, what's his twist? What's his flair? What makes his style unique and special well, um, what does he bring to the table? He, let me just be careful. He doesn't change anything. He's not editing facts, okay? He's not like saying, well, I like the story to go this way, so I'm going to say Jesus did this. That's not, what it, that's not what it's about. But what does he bring to life? Well, first, he says this in verse number two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So something that Luke does that we don't know the other gospel writers did is he interviewed eyewitnesses. So who were some of the people? Well, we know Luke hung out with Paul, the apostle, right? He probably spent time with Peter, and he probably spent time with John. Maybe he met James. So he, he knew some of these men from the, from the apostles, the early church, who saw these things with their own eyes. You know, it's, it's kind of like this. Um, if you were to, let's say you were on a jury in a courtroom, and a lawyer comes up, and he brings up a witness, and he says to the witness, hey, did you see the defendant murder the victim? And the witness is like, well, my friend heard from his sister, heard from his dad, 
heard from his brother, heard from Joe Schmo that he did it. Like, how confident would you be on that jury to convict the guy? I, I hope if you're a reasonable human, you'd be like, I don't know about this one, right? But Luke, Luke's gospel is intentional. His twist and the flavor he's going to add to it is this. He wants us to have certainty concerning the things that he writes. And so he himself, the beloved physician, went and interviewed eyewitnesses to hear from them exactly what happened in the recent times with Jesus. Um, He says this, look at verse number four. He says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That you may be confident in the things that you've been taught. And so that's the goal in this series, and and that's what kind of his special flavor is, is that he brings a confidence that comes from good investigative work. And notice what else he says. Look at verse number uh, three. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past. Now, Luke didn't just throw this gospel together. He was like, well, I heard this and I heard this and I heard this. He took his time and he worked hard and he devoted a lot of energy and effort to interviewing eyewitnesses and putting together this gospel in such a way that it was intentional. That's what else he says. Look at verse number three. He says, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So if we want to know how Luke wrote this gospel, he interviewed eyewitnesses. He, he took his time. This wasn't, like, um, this wasn't like when your teacher assigns a paper and it's due in like two months and then the night before you write it, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't one of those. Like he took his time and he put this together and he put it together in an orderly way. Now that's where we need to be careful because when we hear orderly, we typically think like chronological And Luke's gospel isn't necessarily always chronological. What Luke means when he says orderly is he means that it's intentional. He put everything exactly where it was supposed to be so that it would show this beautiful gospel for us. And so he he interviews eyewitnesses. He takes his time. He orders and arranges this gospel in an intentional way. And as we study through it, we want to keep that in the back of our mind. Lastly, Luke says that he is compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. You can see that in verse 1. To Pastor Harry's credit, I'm going to say I like the NIV better on this one. The NIV translates, if you were here last week, by the way, Pastor Harry, or two, last week? Yeah, last week, Pastor Harry preached from the NIV. Um, Just filling in all of those who missed the joke, okay? Um, The NIV, I think, gets this right. Here's how they translate it. They say the things that have been fulfilled among us. So what is Luke's gospel all about? It is about the things that have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Douglas um, Moo and D.A. Carson kind of have four themes that they say the gospel of Luke is all about. And what I've done is I've, I've taken those and put them into one sentence for us. Here's what the gospel of Luke is all about. So we know the author. We know how he wrote it. What's it all about? Luke's gospel is all about the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation to not only Israel, but the whole world with a special emphasis on the outcasts in society. That's a long sentence. Let me say it one more time. What is Luke's gospel about? It is about the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation to not only Israel, but also the whole world with a special emphasis on the outcasts in society. So, Luke is going to show us over and over and over again how the things that he records are fulfillment 
of God's plan that has been percolating and unfolding for all of time. Ever since man fall, fell into sin, God started a plan to redeem us from that sin. He, he chose a people from himself, the people of Abraham. He chose a king from the people of Abraham, David. And from his line, he would send forward one who would undo what was done in the fall and save us from our sin. And Luke wants us to be very clear that that is exactly what has happened in his gospel. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Um, starting at verse number 67. We're going to study this in the next few weeks, but I just want to point out um, in our limited section of chapters 1 to 2, that's exactly what we're seeing. So if you remember Zechariah, um, his mouth gets sealed because he doesn't believe when the angel tells him that he's going to have a son because he's really old and he doesn't believe old people can have kids like this. So his mouth is like sealed. He can't speak. He's mute. And as soon as the baby's born... Um, this is what Zechariah says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy um, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, I'm not going to unpack all that because that's what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. But basically what Zechariah is saying is everything that's happening, everything that's happening with this person Jesus is the unfolding of God's plan which was prophesied by prophets in the Old Testament and has come to pass in these last days. And, and now we are seeing that unfolding in the person of Jesus. So the first part of this that we're gonna see in the Gospel of Luke is that it is all about the fulfillment of God's plan. And what is that plan? That plan is to bring salvation. This Gospel is all about salvation, being saved, and, and that comes up over and over and over again throughout the gospel. If you look with me at Luke chapter 2, and look at verse number 32. Sorry, excuse me, 22. After Jesus is born, he goes to the temple with his family to, be, um, to follow these purification rules that they were supposed to follow. And there's a man there named Simeon. And basically... Um, Simeon says this. So if you look at verse number 25, he says, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem who na whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before the Lord's Christ, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your what? And who is he looking at? He's looking at baby Jesus. Now, he's not a baby at this point. Um, well, excuse me, he is. Um, but he's looking at Jesus. And so Luke wants us to see that this salvation is through this person Jesus. 
And look what else he says, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the who? To the Gentiles. Interesting. What was Luke? A Gentile. Luke wants us to know that salvation has come in this person of Jesus. The God of the universe became a man, lived amongst us, and died the death that we deserve so that we might be saved. Now, you're, you're going to see a special emphasis in this gospel on the nations, on the Gentiles, because Luke is a Gentile. And, and so that's why we have, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the good Samaritan, or um, the centurion who believes. Or, there's all these different accounts in Luke that just point to the fact that this salvation is available to all. And lastly, it's for the outcast. And so in Luke's gospel, there is special care for the rejects, for the sinner, for the tax collector, for the leper, for the widow, for the poor, all of the people whose society have pushed away and rejected and, and pushed aside, these people get special care from our Lord in the book of Luke. And, and Luke is inviting us to come and enjoy that same compassion. So what is Luke about? It's, it's a gospel about the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation not only to Israel, but also the whole world with a special emphasis on the outcasts. So over the next few weeks, we're going to study through this in chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to read about visits from angels and old couples who have babies and a young virgin who has a baby and an old man who goes mute. And there's going to be songs and there's going to be prayers and there's going to be this amazing story of how God was born in human flesh as fulfillment of his plan to save us. And so my challenge for you this morning is this. As you look at your life, as you consider your spiritual disciplines, as you consider the way that you're relating to your church family or your, your, your family at home, as you think about your habits and your life, I started by, asking you, by saying this, the way we make decisions is impacted by our confidence, yes? Do you have confidence that Jesus came, the God of the universe, to die in your place? He was born as a man. He grew which is something else that Luke is the only one who really points to, is his, his upbringing. And then he ultimately died on the, cross, on the cross in our place. And so this Christmas, let's remember that, and let's celebrate it, and let's let Luke give us confidence and boldness as we think about that truth. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Luke, your, your beloved physician, and his work... Uh, diligently laying these things out for us. And Father, we pray that as we go through this series in Luke 1 through 2, that you would give us confidence, that you would help us remember exactly what you've done for us in your Son, and that we would believe it, Lord, that our lives would be changed by it and transformed by the good news that your Son came to die in our place. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.